This is Humans of Non-League, a podcast about the people who live and love football outside the spotlight. My name is Chris Nee, and this week's human is a genuine giant of our national sport. Francis Duku is a former Dulwich Hamlet, Maidenhead United, Crawley Town, Bromley and Gravesend a Norfolk player of some repute. Since hanging up his boots though, he's become a champion of non-league footballers nationwide. We'll be getting on to that. First, let's bring in the man himself. Francis, welcome to the show. Chris, good to speak to you. It's been a little while. We have spoken before, but it was way back at the beginning of our game, which is going to be something we're going to talk about in some detail. Yeah, it was indeed. I think we were, what, six, seven years maybe when we first first met. So, uh, yeah, it has been a while. It has been a while. Yeah, but potentially even longer than that. But we'll come on to that. I want to go all the way to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where did Francis Duku go to school, for example? Went to school at a place called St. Thomas the Apostle in Nunhead. So I grew up in Peckham. Yeah. Um, and yeah, lived there until maybe about 12 years ago and I've moved to where I am now. But yeah, grew up in Peckham. Lots of friends who we still keep in touch with. Football mad area. Football mad school. Um, and that's really, you know, what kept pushing me along all the way through on the football side as well. School's a good school um, in terms of academics as well. Um, but yeah, good experience growing up. So you did, did you enjoy the academic side of school as well? Yeah, I did quite well. Um, yeah. You know, eight A stars to C, but football was always the big thing for me. But I just come from a family where my parents are, were both uh, academic focused. Um, dad was a doctor, my mum was a nurse, and they wanted us to, you know, all their kids to, to push on and go to college, uni, etc. Um, I kept dreaming about football, but managed to do the both to uh, well, keep them happy, keep a roof over my head, maybe. <laughs> When I was growing up, we lived in a, a kind of close and all of the kids used to congregate on this bit of green patch of grass and just play football all the time, all the, through the summer holidays, every night after school. Was it anything like that where you were growing up? No, not where I lived because we only had a really small area. But, um, you know, it was a, uh, a state which had a green patch, I don't know, which could have been 20 by 20. So we did play in there, but there were quite a few kids when we were growing up, so you wouldn't really get much quality in the game. To be able to get more of that happen was at school. I used to go to school. Um, you know, school would start at, let's say, nine o'clock. There were times that I'd be in the playground at 8.15. And we'd have all arranged to come in early and we'd play football before school, which then obviously means you're going into the che- um, classroom. Everyone's already sweaty and tired or whatever. But just people wanted to come in and play. When it's the good weather, I should say as well. No one did it in the rain or the winter. <laughs> but um, yeah, that, that was really the bigger experience of playing, you know, the, the big groups of, Let's just say, say wild, but street football, people call it now, you know, where there's no real rules or goals. It's just get the ball, play, practice your skills, learn something new. If you could do something that would, you know, get everyone excited, you became popular for the day, for the week. And uh, that's what people lived for. Used to also go to a few um, other, you know, estates near where I lived, where people would be playing as well. So you try and get involved there. But obviously, if you're one of the kids from a different estate, um, unless you knew people, it was always a bit trickier to get involved in the game because there's just always so many people who wanted to play. So you're a gooner. I am indeed. So it's a good time to be getting into them, man. <laughs> um, at the minute, they're causing me a lot of heartache and pain. <laughs> um, if you want to see a grown man cry, keep this conversation going on that line. Yeah. Well, how about 89? Uh, 89 into early 90s, that was all right, wasn't it? Yes. Well, let's say it was the George Graham days, which yeah. was effective rather than, um, you know, the, the, the football we've become accustomed to over recent times under Wenger. And then now we've gone full circle to, um, well, we're, we're rebuilding. Let's just say we're rebuilding. Transitional phase. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who were the players, Arsenal or otherwise, that inspired you growing up? First player really to, I say, really, really got my attention would have been um, Ian Wright. Um, I was always a fan of football, say before, but Ian Wright and his, his whole everything about him. Um, he's from South London. He was um, just, you know, just just played with fun, loads and loads of fun. It would be probably a surprise for people to think that because I was a centre half, um, you know, all the way through. So again, being an Arsenal fan, the likes of your Tony Adams was one who really did catch my eye as well, um, just because he was a. Arsenal man, wasn't he? He was the mm. leader and he was absolutely the Arsenal man. As a knock-on then as well from, I say, my uh, obsession with Italian 90, watching Italian football at the time. I don't know, you, you'd remember, I'm sure. But absolutely. The James Richardson show and things like that, which just went through my Saturdays, um, watching that all the time. 
My son days, then I'd fall asleep in front of the TV again and again, but I'd insist to my mum and dad, now I'm watching it. I'm watching it, don't turn the channel. And at the time, you know, it was full of great defenders. Um, you know, your Maldinis, your Berezis, people who watched it properly, Sampdoria, Biekovod. Um, there was people, Nesta Sensini at Parma. There's people all over, which if you really enjoyed the game, um, as I did at the time, I was just watching, watching all the time. But character-wise and flair, everything else, I have to say Ian Wright, um, even though I'd have been trying to stop him if I'd ever been good enough <laughs> to play against him. Were you watching Serie A and, and learning from those defenders, or was that too young? No, I was trying to. Yeah. Um, I mean, bizarrely, well, I say bizarrely enough, but at school at the time, we were um, learning Italian. So you do French, Italian, or German as one of the, um, you know, your, your foreign language at um, secondary school. So I was convincing myself that it was meant to be, you know, I'm supposed to end up playing in Italy. So really put my head into trying to learn <laughs> Italian um, at that stage. But seeing, you know, you, you listen to the commentary on the TV, especially when they'd be rating the defenders and looking at some of the things they were doing and talking about them. It was just it was an, an attempt to educate myself for sure. Now I'm older, I can appreciate a lot more about finer arts of defending. Um, but yeah, definitely was an attempt to try and learn the, um, well, the art of it, because that's what it was described as in Italian football. They did view defensive shape um, defensive performance and ability as an art, whereas most other countries in the world seem to think of it as ah, that disgusting thing people do to stop the good players from, <laughs> from having fun. Um, so yeah, it was it was an education, definitely was an education. So in terms of organised eleven aside, I know it's changed a little bit these days, but eleven aside football, you and I would have been playing much younger than they do now. Who was the first team that you really lined up for on a proper pitch for a proper game? A team called Beckenham Social. Never ever forget them because um, my best friends at school at the time, a guy called Jamie, his mum and dad um, used to, we lived five minutes, ten minutes walk from each other, he used to pick me up, take me there all the time. Um, and I did did well for them, did really well for them. I took a bit of convincing from my mum and dad to say, yeah, you could go and play. It was just, you know, their, their thing was, my dad was athletic, he played tennis, but his thing was play sport for fun and for, you know, a bit of, um, enjoyment and discipline rather than you're going to, you know, potentially have a career in it. So when it became, can I go and play on Sundays, you know, as a family, we'd go to church and it'd be, well, well what are you going to do there? Um, I was like, okay, well, I'll just go an early time by myself, you know? Um, okay, well, you've got homework, what are you going to do there? All right, well, I'll get the homework done first before we go. Um, the game's in Beckenham. We can't, we're not going to take you. What are you going to do there? Jamie's mum and dad stepped in. You know, every, so everything they threw at me was just like, look, I've got to go. I've got to make sure I get to go. Um, and I had a great time. Really, really had a great time. Played for them for about three years um, before I outgrew them and started to, when I started playing district football for the school, um, people started coming to try and you know, say, come and play for my Sunday team instead. Because we were, you know, there were teams pushing at a higher level. Older boys were at pro clubs and were trying to say, look, we, we can help you, you know, get there as well. So I ended up leaving to sign for a team called St. Thomas Sands, um, who, again, if people of that my age would know, they were the team in South London. Um, they changed their name a year later to be South London Select. That's, in effect, what they, they, they were claiming to be, you know, the select players from South London. But my time at Beckham Social was great. Made some good friends. The people there looked after me superbly. Still speak to this. I'm the assistant manager now. He's also the dad of one of the people I went to school with. He used to do things like he was, you know, at the time he had Ford Escort XR2. Do you remember those? The convertible yeah. where you had to actually put, you know, pull the roof down by hand. But, you know, <laughs> that's what it was at the time. And he had one of those cars and, you know, he used to come down the road from school um, and he picked me up just to drive me back, back home sometimes. And I felt like the man because everyone's seeing me get into this, you know, this convertible sometimes the son wasn't even there you know his son was um picked up by his mum or was going elsewhere i can't remember and then just be you know sometimes just picking me up and dropping me off and it just made me feel absolutely like the man just because i could play football half decent for his team it was uh good memories good times i think that the drive of making sure those obstacles weren't in your way in those early days is indicative of the mindset of the non-league footballer because you have to have a certain level of commitment in order to be a part of this world 
take afternoons off work, go all over the place on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Saturday afternoon, training, all of this, this stuff that people forget yeah. when you're getting, you know, a pretty small, small compensation for it financially. Yeah. But you get so much out of the game, you need to make sure that you're completely into the idea of doing it. And if you're removing church homework as obstacles, it sounds like you were just cut out to play the game. Is that fair? Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. My dream was to be a pro. You know, I was devastated when injury happened at a time which I thought we was actually going to be, you know, going into the game. There were times when I thought I should have been in the game already. Um, My opinion, and everyone's got their own opinions and, you know, their ability and other people's, but I thought I was good enough to be a pro, Um, but wasn't, didn't happen. So clearly I wasn't good enough. But then in non-league, it was just, I'm going to make the most of it as I could. As much as I can get out of it, I'm going to. And when I'm saying that, I'm not talking about money. Because, you know, I won't lie, I'd earned a reasonable wage at times, um, but not all the way through. And there were times I turned down much, much bigger salaries to, to stay at what I thought was the right club for me. As I say, the life of a non-league player, you really do need to be committed to what you're doing to do it well. And when you turn up on a Saturday or a Tuesday and, you know, you may not play the best, it's not the same as for a pro where they've had all week to prepare and, you know, they've had things to just forget about because all the only focus was football. You know, there were times I got to games. Um, I remember one time in particular, Jack Pierce at Bogner, he'll always talk, talk about this. He, he'll never let me forget this. We had a game when I was at Gravesend, we played Bogner away on a Tuesday night and I got out of work late. I can't remember all the reason I got out of work late. I missed the coach from Gravesend. I couldn't get there. I had to get a train to Bognor from the city. So this is obviously all last minute. So you run to the train station. I need to get to Bognor. How much a ticket? I can't remember what I told you, but you pay on the day and it's even more money. Thinking, I need this, but I've got to play. You know, everyone's waiting for me. Pay for the ticket. Get there. Get to the station. I'm already late. You know, kickoff's at 7.45. And I think I get to the station at, I can't remember, 7.15 or something like that wait around, get a cab, get the cab in there. Jack swears I turned up on a motorbike for some reason. <laughs> I can't remember that for the life of me, but he swears I turned up on a motorbike. But literally got there and I've been on the phone to manager Andy Ford at the time all the way through. You know, he's rated me enough. He's like, he's just kept my shirt for me. He said, look, what time are you getting here? Right, we're going to wait. We put you on the team sheet. Literally got there, stripped off my uh, work suit, straight into my football kit, Five-minute warm-up, played the game. We won 2-0. I scored both goals as a centre-half. Jack looks at it and thinks, how have you got here? It's affected the game like that. He says, that sticks in his mind. But um, it's the kind of thing which, you know, as a non-league player, you have to deal with sometimes. There'll be times I've got to games late and I've then been appalling. I have been absolutely awful. But no one wants to hear the story of, well, you know, you had a disaster at work that you had to fix first and then... You've not slept all night because you've been, you know, whatever's took on and you've just got to the game just in time. People just want to see you play um, and play well. So it's um, it's a constant, say, battle, but constant balance in that you, players have to go through to be able to make it work. Did you have a player in that squad who was looking after fines for that kind of thing? Usually it would have been me, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> and you could guess I wouldn't have fined myself. Now, at that stage, I think I uh, would have been Jimmy Jackson, probably. He was... Gravesend, legend, absolute legend. So again, there's people who, where I look at it and think I could or should have been a pro, there's people like him who I can say for sure, 100% should have been, you know, absolute wonder of a left foot, consistent beyond belief, but he's a local legend. You know, at the time, whenever we went, we was in Gravesend, you, you, wherever he'd go, his family was well known. People just loved him. He's the nicest, nicest guy and a great, great player. But yeah, he'd have been on fines. I don't know if I'd have paid him or not, though. I'd have maybe tried to talk my way out of it. <laughs> not after scoring two goals. Yeah, exactly. Got you through the next round of the cup. What more do you want? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I only actually saw you play once. And it was a, a playoff at Leatherhead in 2011, which I'm not going to ask you about. You mean the one which we threw away? Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I need to ask you, having seen only that game, what <laughs> style of defender would you describe yourself as? Physical. So... Um, big guy as you as you would have seen and know. When I where I grew up, when I grew up playing, I was a centre mid. I was a creative centre mid. Um, just the way we played in in Peck and Pew, everyone valued the skillful players, and you just learn the you know skills and tricks. And I was able to just take that onto the pitch. I was athletic, mobile, 
and I was always thinking of tricks and different bits and pieces. Um, scored a lot of goals and used to, you know, it's quite fit. So used to just make a lot of um, runs, which people struggled to keep up with me on. But as I grew older, um, I had a growth spurt, which really um, changed a lot for me because I became less mobile, but became also bigger, more powerful, more powerfully built. And my game just slowly adapt, started adapting from where I couldn't do the tricks and flicks and skills so much anymore. I went from centre mid to a right mid to right back to centre half. And then when I settled at centre half, must have been about the age of 16, I think it was, 16. I did quite well. Um, got looked at pro level. Um, ended up going to do what would have been YTS back then for Reading. Stayed at college, but went and travelled and played for them on the Saturdays, captained their youth team and all this kind of stuff, despite the fact I wasn't training. Everyone was full-time. I just used to turn up and play. It was just something that happened quite naturally for me. But using those natural attributes is what I kept pushing on. You know, So I was quite big, quite strong, quite fit. I just kept developing those. And to an extent, I didn't have a choice because some of the managers I played for just saw that. And you know, in, in football at that time as well, you got put into boxes very quickly. The moment they saw I was six foot plus and, you know, quite built, it would be, that's what I want you to do. And that's what I just kept going with rather than the bits which I'd grown up learning and came more naturally to me. So the player I was at the end versus the player I was when I started, two very, very different things. Did you have a manager through your career who recognised that your capability on the ball was a real contributing factor to being a good defender as well. The manager I played for who most demanded people to get on the ball was actually one of my best mates, Gavin Rose. So he, he again, he grew up in Peckham. We, that's where I knew him from. I've known him since the age of five, five or six. Um, we grew up in the same area. And as he went on his coaching career, he always insisted people would play football, you know, and play football properly. By the time I played for him, I was at the other end of it. So he had a lot of frustrations with me at times, but, you know, he knew what <laughs> I would, could do. Um, and wanted bring people to, you know, to do in his team. But um, it was near the end of my career when I did that. Most of the other managers who I played for were more, you know, on the non-league side was defend, defenders defend, and then let the midfielders and forwards, you know, go on to play. If you could do something with the ball and, you know, keep help, keep it in, in the right areas, yeah, they'd love it. But if you used to do it and then it would go wrong, you'd hear about it for a long, long time. So when you see on TV these days, when people talk about, you know, um, again, I'm not trying to jump too too high here, but, you know, the Guardiola's movie who say it's okay to have to try, you know, because it's actually a point to what they're doing. The non-league attitude was, okay, you can try it, but just don't lose it and don't let them score. Because if they do lose, you do lose it and they score, that's it. There is no, you know, I, I could see what he was trying to do or, you know, there's a second chance of it. It'll just be, he'd be dropped. You know, so just defenders defend and midfielders forward do their bit. And I was actually quite good at retaining instructions. So it wasn't just, you know, defend as an instruction, but in terms of, you know, the, the, the shape and then being able to help people understand where they should be in the shape or then formations and patterns that people would be work on during the week. I was actually quite good at taking that on. So when it was just a thing of make sure you just defend, I maybe took it too literally and just defended. But it was effective um, and contributed to a, a reasonable non-league career. So you come through into adult football with Maidenhead United, Crawley Town, they were early on, right? Yeah, first team was Romford though. Oh, okay. So I had, basically when I was 16, I played for, well, 17 even, I played for Welling. Welling at the time were the only non-league team who had a full-time YTS team. So they were competing against all the pro teams in uh, what was then the Southeast Counties. Did really well with them and ended up going for an extended trial at West Ham where I met a guy called um, Dave Goodwin, who's a um, really well-known scout for people um, my age in the Blackheath and, and London, South London area. You know, he thought, and I thought as well, I should have been offered something at West Ham, but West Ham had done me a favour, done me a real favour because the, the youth team manager basically decided I wasn't ready for pro, which was right, um, and he wasn't going to take me out of college for one year YTS. You know, just didn't think it was right for me. Um, you know, for my life as a whole. In hindsight now, I'm grateful. I am grateful because I would have taken a YTS if he'd offered it. Where it would have ended up, who knows? May I may have done well. I may have got a deal somewhere else. Who knows? But um, this Dave Goodwin had a lot of confidence in me and he was the one who then took me on to Reading. Felt I should have been definitely signed as a pro. I felt the same. 
but then he took me into um, non-league from there um, for, with you know his support. His brother owned Romford, and that's how I ended up there. But then when I moved to university, I went to actually Reading University because part of the plan was for me I would have stayed at uni while being a first second year pro. You know, I was that convinced Reading were going to sign me because of all this, mm. you know everything I've been doing. Reading became my choice of university, and I've kind of lined it up to be able to um, study um, around you know, what would have been playing, you know, pro football. Didn't get a pro contract, but by that time, was, you know, I was really committed to Reading Uni. So then that's where I ended up at Maidenhead. Again, Dave Goodwin took me there because he knew Alan Devonshire, who was the manager at the time. I think it was his second job in non-league at the time. And um, great experience playing for him there. When you're pushing through at that sort of age and you're suddenly playing against grown-ups, mm-hmm. your physicality is the kind of thing that makes 16, 17, 18-year-olds really click in a first team in adult non-league football, I think. Mm-hmm. Did you find it easy to make that step up? To be honest, I'm a big guy, um, but a lot of people would describe me as a, a gentle giant. And it's more when I lose my temper that people will realise, oh, he's, you know, <laughs> he's as big as he is. Or maybe mm-hmm. I realise I'm as big as I am, I think they do think. But people see me and say, oh, the size of him. And I wouldn't actually... No, notice it too much but when I'm playing you know at that age people were more I suppose seeing my size and being cautious rather than me going around and throwing my weight around and making them you know the most use of it which would definitely have made it easier for the transition um you know from youth team football into into senior football especially at those levels I think you know Romford say my first team the pitch there was horrendous absolutely horrendous anyone who remembers it the old Sungate ground when it got to December, it's literally, if you had games weren't off, you know, every every other week, um, it'd be you'd be amazed. Ground was always flooded and you'd be running along, um, you know, in, in those matches when it was on with mud seeping into your boots, you know, because it just wasn't, it was just not well, not well drained. But um, the football then, you know, on that kind of pitch, and it makes perfect sense if you look at it now, you'd be, can you get the ball forward? Can you not give away, you know, unnecessary chances for you trying to turn on the ball and slip in? And it then became more of a fight game, which being my size and, you know, height, etc., was something which gave me an advantage over smaller people or, or, you know, people who just didn't have the same physicality. So it definitely did help. Were you playing against 32, 33-year-old lads who were teaching you the snide arts of the game as well? Oh, yeah, massively, massively. Bit of a clip on the ankle, pull on the shirt. Clip, clip around the chin and you know I think <laughs> my eyes split a couple of times and you know some of the times I'd leave an elbow on you and it always could say a bit of my naivety at the time when they'd be oh I'm sorry I'm sorry I'd, I'd take it as it was an accident and right. I'd just be also thinking don't let them see they've hurt me it was just a kind of a you know natural defense of yeah all right even if it hurts you've got to try and continue like, as if it hasn't as opposed to then me going around and putting it on them, you know, because people would always like, you should smash him. But if I didn't see the need to, and it, it kind of helped me in my defence, defending sometimes as well, because maybe a bit back to the whole Italian thing of trying to look at where you can anticipate the ball, rather than having to think how you can smash through somebody. Um, it was more eye on the ball, seeing his movement, how you can use your brain to get around him to the ball, rather than just thinking, you know, kick through him. The kick through him part people expected, um, and again, the comments people have said to me over the time was they would have expected me to be going around smashing people all over the place. And that would have just helped with the, the aura or the, you know, the, the view of what I'm doing on the pitch. But my thing was, if I don't need to do it, then don't do it. So I didn't. Ultimately, I probably got it wrong, though, because I say I didn't make as much of my career as I thought I probably could or should have. So did you avoid bookings most of the time? Yes, yes. I think I only ever had one season where I got more than five bookings. I only ever picked up one red card, um, which was for two yellows um, as well, in, what, 16, 17 years of playing. I bet you remember that like it was yesterday. I do. Where where was that? Gravesend. Picked up two yellows. Can't actually remember the team I played against, but I think the first one was for descent. The second one was for a trick. I'm not one who does descent as well. That's just not me. So I don't even know what happened at the time. I just remember walking off thinking, has that happened? How have I just been sent off? <laughs> um, and it was this, yeah, it's the one time I got a, a red card in my career. And say it was for two yellows, which were, um, I wouldn't even have minded so much if it was for two big, bad tackles, you know, which people have 
look, the, the big centre half has gone smash Pete, smash the you know smash the guy, and this that's what he's supposed to do. Because then I could at least point to people at some point and say, look, I did actually do it once or twice. But um, yeah, it was for two silly, silly, silly things, and um, spoiled the record of playing without a red card. Let's counterbalance it with a good side of Gravesend then. So you, you you've said before that winning the Conference South with with Gravesend and Northfleet was the highlight of, of your non-league career. Tell me a bit about that experience, what that season must have been like. It, it was pretty special, I would think. Yeah, I mean, Gravesend was an amazing time. Andy Ford uh, was the manager at the time, assistant with Phil Hanford. And um, when we got promoted, he brought in Ron Hillyard, who was an uh, ex-Jill's keeper as well. But the team spirit Andy Ford created at Gravesend was second to none. It was absolutely unbelievable. There were times we were playing and we would be, um, as a team, like we'd hate the fact he would never give us a night off. Like actually, he would never, if there was, no, you, you couldn't train because it was wet, windy or raining, he would find a school in the middle of nowhere and tell you, be there at seven o'clock and you'd play bench ball, if nothing else, just so he could get you in, having a sweat and, you know, good workout on. And as a group of boys, we were all thinking, we need a night off or why is he doing that for? You know, we just need to just, Everyone, let's just pretend we didn't, you know, get the message or whatever. But we'd always turn up because just we were in it together. Everyone was in it together. Remember one Saturday as well, we had a game was called off. And for whatever reason, he again, he insisted we had to train. And, every, and this must have been around about Christmas time because everyone's thinking we could just do, you know, with the time off, everyone just spend some time with family, whatever else. I remember we ended up training somewhere, which was right by a graveyard. So sometimes people are having to go and, retrieve the balls from right by or on the edge or, you know, just, it was just fitting where you could because um, it was public parks, you know, which he was, he was finding for us there. And that discipline took us a long, long way because when we won the league, we beat Canvey and Aldershot to the league title and um, they were both big, big players at that time as well. You know, the Canvey under Jeff King, Aldershot with George Borg at the time. Um, you know, Aldershot had they're the ex-football league clubs. They had 2,000-odd fans, you know, most weeks, um, which gave them, you know, an ability to do stuff. Canvey, you know, Jeff was a, he's from the island, self-made man, made a lot of money. He put his money where his mouth was to try and build a team which would compete. And then us as Gravesend, you know, we had a reasonable crowd, reasonable following, which grew as we were winning and, you know, the, everyone could sense something special was happening. But comparatively, very low paid. Um, but just a great bunch of boys who came together who wanted to play football. And that team spirit took us a long, long way, really long way. So when we won the league that year, everyone was, um, you know, looked back on it and thought that is the culmination of a probably about a three-year process. I think it was the third year I was there when we won it. But culmination of a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, and we just kept improving and improving and improving. And we just wanted to prove, you know, to beat the odds. People say, no, they can't win it. Can we win it? Or all the shot will win it. And that just spurred us on. That siege mentality people talk about was something and before it created massively within us. And personally, I did well. Player of the year, got a great reputation in non-league, got called up for the England Sea trial games and I think the man of the match in that first game. And at the times when people weren't really taking people from the second tier into the England Sea squad, I was on the standby list. And, you know, things are a bit of a breakthrough. Um, for me in terms of my football that year as well. What was the end of that season like? Did you win it with room to spare or was it a down-to-the-wire job? Oh, down-to-the-wire. Was it? Not the last game of the season. I think we were away at Bedford, Bedford Town, and we had to better Canvey's result. So I think they were a point behind us um, and we just had to better their result. So we ended up winning 1-0, I believe, if I remember correctly, 1-0 or 2-0. I think it was 1-0. I had a hand in one of the goals, I think the only goal. I kind of used my physicality, ball's gone up, the keeper, I've jumped. Keeper's tried to catch it over me. I've nudged him a bit, it's dropped down. Centre forward, Che has scored. And I think Canvey drew one all, if I remember rightly. So we were waiting for people talking under terraces, you know, there was tracking the Canvey game, looking at our game. And we, when we won, everyone's looking around nervously. Then the word came through that Canvey had drawn and yeah, it just all went off. We had a great celebration that day. I bet. Did you make the step up with them the following season? Yeah, I did. So when we'd won the league, I mean, we, I got called up for Denver as well for Middlesex Wanderers. 
who were um, non-league touring side. They're supposed to be, they previously were like the England non-league team. Then an England non-league team was established, but then they just became a, you know, a top end touring side, but not just for ability, but people of um, character as well. You know, they, they, the whole thing was to spread goodwill around the world, you know, with, with football, going different countries to play football. So I got called up there and I was then asked to sign for both Canby and Aldershot. They were both put very, very good offers on the table. I think that's sounding too big-headed. I was probably the defender most people wanted in their team at the time, at that level. And I turned them both down because I'd say it'd been three years worth of work to get to play at the Conference National. And we just won promotion. And I thought, I'm not going to give this up. Realistically, I knew one of those teams would have gone up that next year because the, the, the money which they were putting into the team, I knew they were going to both have strong squads, but I couldn't you know, know which one would definitely be it. And I knew I was already in that top division now and I'd be a main player for Gravesend if I stayed. So um, I turned down the money and stayed. But then that is the summer, that pre-season, I broke my leg and yeah, everything changed because this wasn't quite the same player after that after that leg break. I think we need to talk about Dulwich Hamlet as well. Your, your leg break is massive in, in what we're going to come on to. Mm-hmm. Um, you are united with Gavin at, at Dulwich Hamlet, which is where I know a lot of people who, who got into London and South East non-league football around the same time as, as I did will recognise you from. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that move come about? Because that's you, you went to Bromley in between, is that right? Yeah, I played at Bromley. And we again, we did really well there. I had a great time at Bromley. They played, to be fair, they played, insisted on playing football as well. I think that was the first, that actually would have been the first team that insisted on playing pure football. Simon Osborne and Bobby Bowery had come in as player coaches under Mark Goldberg. And we had a great, great team. I mean, anyone who knows South London football um, at the time, there was, was it myself, Bobby, a guy called Donald O'Sullivan at the back, who he again should have been a pro, but he was just so laid back, it was unreal. Centre forward and centre half, so much ability. Tutu Enriquez, a bit younger, but he's in and around it there, great young player in it. Midfield was Simon Osborne, Barry Moore, um, Peter Denyi, Junior Caddy, um, a young Sam Wood was playing. Um, Gareth McCleary um, was in the squad. Had a Gareth Williams, Nick McDonnell up for it. You know, we had a really, really good team and played football right the way through. But we won the playoffs that year, stepped up with them into the Conference South. Didn't have my best time after a lot of stuff which had changed off the pitch for me as well, but mm. didn't have my best time. Left then, I think I went to Fisher and I probably ended up I can't remember, I think I played somewhere else before I ended up at Dulwich. Um, Kingstonian, that's it, I ended up at Kingstonian. And then when Gavin had gone in at Dulwich, um, he just asked me to come in and help out. He'd got um, a young team. You know, he, he's done a lot of great work with young players. Wanted a bit of experience. He knew I was, you know, obviously at the wrong end of my career in terms of age. But wanted a bit of experience, someone he could trust, someone to help the young boys out. Um, so he, he more approached me as a, you know, as a friend. Look. We can't pay you what you've been learning in the past, but what we can do is enjoy your football, have a good time with your mates, play with us and just be be local again. And it's like, yeah, no, don't worry about it. I'm not, you know, not going to be a millionaire of football. That's not the, the intention. So let me come and enjoy, my, enjoy the time. So, yeah, that's where we ended up there. Seems like a great place to play. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, he, him and Junior, great. So they're friends of mine from years, years and years. Junior... I've known, first met him playing against him. Gavin say we just grew up in the same area. And they just have fun with, you know, they play football the right way. They try to teach people. And part of the thing for me as well was, say, with the amount of work they were doing with young people at that time as well, it just also gave me a, you know, my first real, say, opportunity to, to kind of put something back because some of the youngsters coming through, I was spending a bit of time speaking to them as well, just learning, you know, how to help them you know, in the same ways I've seen, you know, Gavin do for, for years, to be fair. Whereas when I was playing and maybe going for different moves, because we used to play together, it's when we grew up, me and Gavin, played together in non-league for a good while, but then Gavin took on his coaching um, career much further. 
and I was more just continuing to play and just see some of the sacrifices he'd made and, you know, he'd impacted people's lives and developed some really good footballers. And yeah, I just supported that a bit and had fun along the way. You're obviously interested in the well-being of those young players. Did it ever cross your mind to go down the coaching route rather than what you ended up doing? I'm not patient enough. <laughs> I really am not patient enough. I think some of the... Um, I did a bit of coaching over summer with some of the different, different school schemes or schemes of clubs, people I'd worked with. And if there were things which weren't being done correctly, you know, I, I would get frustrated, but at the same time have to realise... You know, some of these people are just there for fun. But when you got into the actual, you know, semi-pro world of it, where people are, you know, playing with a, you know, the purpose of three points or, or, or a, you know, an actual direction, I just wasn't patient enough to take the time to learn what I'd need to, but also then knowing some of the stuff I've had to deal with, especially in hindsight now, some of the stuff I've had to deal with from some of the players has been, I, I, I do need my distance at times rather than... Um, being responsible for them all the time, you know, in that team team environment. So um, coaching may have worked, but management would have been um, trickier for me. When you're playing for Dulwich Hamlet, are you aware of the club's popularity with football writers in London, non-league tourists and those kind of people? They're a very popular destination for people coming in from the outside of the game. Is that Does that filter through to the players? Well, I think it is now, but when I've first signed there under Gavin um, I don't think it was like that at all because we were you know the times we were attracting some of the you know I remember Tuesday midweek games where we had 90 fans or something like that 50 fans in there at times it's something more that built on over time as the team the style of play Gavin introduced was you know embedded and became successful and then the, the work being done off the terraces you know um, someone like Mishi rest in mm. peace I mean he's you know passed not too long ago um, but someone like Mishi was a huge influence on that as well. And that balance of the work and the, the vision of Gavin Cabs and, you know, what they were trying to do, which then aligned to someone like Mishi prepared to also put, you know, his, his, his work into it, just, just created that combination, which, which resulted in where, where it is now. When I first signed for Dulwich, in fairness as well, when I was maybe 20, under Bill Smith. Oh, yeah. And at the time, they had a good good following, you know, seven 800 fans for, for most weeks, you know, because Dulwich, historically, they have been one of the big, big non-league clubs. But when I came back the second time with Gavin, say the the, the, the numbers were, were totally different. Saturdays were probably down to about two, three hundred. But so I can really remember some midweek games where <laughs> there were more players than fans. So, you know, it's that kind <laughs> of um, scenario at times and then they just build it up over the time we first met a little while ago now when you were first setting up our game but before that as a player i think you were involved in various bodies and i hope it's fair to say that you've been pretty active in making football a better place over the years and that includes work with kick it out and with show racism the red card what were your roles when you were involved with with those organizations both on the education side so you know again as much as i say the the patience to not be a coach. There are other things which, you know, would be require patience. And I, I've definitely, you know, been able to adapt to, to, to deliver on those. So being able to go through some of the education pieces with people um, and try to help them understand um, is, well, one of the things which, which we tried to do with the roles that kick it out and show racism the red card. Used to go into schools with show racism the red card all over the, well, southeast mainly, but there were times of being asked to, you know, be in Birmingham for a nine o'clock school day to deliver an education workshop. And the whole thing was, you know, basis is people would hear the footballers are coming in and there'd be a day of activities planned, the workshops and the activities, and we'd just try and speak to them in a, you know, the way they'd understand, you know, based on the fact that they love football. To be honest, some of them, when they told footballers were coming in, they'd probably be expecting David Beckham and then <laughs> we'd turn up. <laughs> but... Um, they, 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 it was good. It was good. The kids were, you know, working with the, the ages which we worked with at times there. They were, you know, really, um, it really opened your eyes to how impactful things could be um, if delivered in the right way. And then likewise, we'll kick it out. I think kick it out. We spent more time in and around the professional clubs, giving people confidence to maybe ask questions and explore some topics which, you know, sometimes people are less comfortable speaking about. Um, you know, racism is a subject which, especially you see, you know, these days, still hasn't gone away. 
and it's miles away from you know from going away, but it has to be addressed um, rather than hidden away from. And um, that's what we we do. We'd go in to try and facilitate addressing it, um, not trying to tell people they're right and wrong unless they're obviously right and wrong. You know, there's some things which is just not up for debate. But if people have a a fear or a view, you know, we just try and walk through it with them to help them explore it without sounding judgmental. I have my clear views on it, but at the same time, I can't go in and expect everyone to share my view. I can just justify my view both um, in in any environment. And that's what I say to them to do. If you genuinely believe this, that or the other, you, you've got to be prepared to stand by it and explain why you do. And if that's your genuine belief, no one can ask anymore. If it's not your genuine belief and you're jumping on a bandwagon for whatever reason, you've got to ask yourself a lot of questions. You're coming to the, the end of your playing career and our game is, is, I assume, by this point, bubbling away as, as an idea. Why don't you tell us what it is, where it came from, what the aims are? Our game was running alongside the time of Kick It Out, Show Us in the Red Card. I'd actually started it first. Um, and then once I'd left work to focus on our game, um, it created the opportunity to support those you know, those charities and yeah. work in an environment that, that was, you know, suited to where my, my, my focus was now. But um, touched on earlier, when I broke my leg at Gravesend, I had an experience where basically the diagnosis was incorrect. I was told it was just a sprain um, by, you know, some physios and, and, and a club doctor where we were playing away in a pre-season tour. And I basically ended up going out with the boys that night on crutches because I was told, look, have some painkillers, you'll, you'll be fine. When you have a drink, all of a sudden the pain feels less and less. But when you wake up the next morning, um, you realise just, just how bad it was. And it, I believe it had a massive impact on my career. You know, in fact, when the operation took place, it was done as if I was a lay person, not someone who's trying to be a, you know, a high-performing athlete. So it left me with a lot of scar tissue in my ankle where they decided to pin it to help stabilise rather than operating, you know, in the most efficient way to, to get me back to playing sport again. So that misdiagnosis and, you know, my view, the, the incorrect operation had a massive impact on me. But I was lucky in that I worked in the city and I had um, comprehensive medical insurance as part of my job. So when I came out of hospital, I was able to get private physio paid for but the damage was you know too far done to recoup to the way it should be but it still put me in a better position than, than most would be and having that insurance and the network of friends I had who played at a high level who could then put me in touch with the right people at least gave me a chance to rehab um, as best as possible and then when I was reflecting on this you know as I was back playing and seeing more people get injured it was a blatantly obvious to me. There's just so many people who just don't have the same connections that I did or the same access to, you know, the funding with through the insurance, which I had. So they were then being forced to stop playing or, you know, they're just really getting no help whatsoever. And that's the basis of which our game came from. I looked at how can I help players to access the things which I know I have access to, but even despite that access I had, I didn't get the optimal treatment. So can I help that happen, you know, at non-league level, whereas in the pro game, it's um, taken for granted and given as, as, as a matter of course. So that's been uh, where we got the our game idea from and I've grown it and grown it to, to where it is today. What do players get out of a, an our game membership? I describe it as a, no, a no-brainer because they'll pay to be a member and the essential thing they all get is access to some cash to be able to use on um, medical costs. Now, these costs can be um, football-related or non-football-related, but I'm speaking to the football markets. I'm saying, look, just use it for your football because you're going to get injured. You're going to have a knock, a strain. You know, some of you will get really badly injured. And I say some, I'm being polite there. A lot of you will get really badly injured. And you're going to need access to help. So as a bare minimum, let's just say to you here, you join us, you'll pay a monthly member of, uh, annual fee, but we let you pay it monthly. And we will give you back more than it costs you to be a member in these cash benefits we've been able to build a scheme that you know we've fallen into a bigger pot which are run by a major company and we say to players look just exist on us on our platform and it will pay for itself year after year without fail even if you don't get injured 
So you can pay for scans, for consultations, for private physio. There are things people don't think about. You know, a chiropodist will tell you if you're in a changing room and you're playing football, you know, in a humid environment, your feet are getting stamped on and kicked. You should see a chiropodist every three months. You know, that, that's a recommendation. Um, it will pay for that. If you have ongoing niggling pain, which you can't get rid of, you know, you could use it to go and see a chiropractor once a month to click out your back. All of these things are just things you can do to get your money back. And then if you do get injured, you can then use it for the scan, the consult, etc. We've then gone on to build it further now. So we, we've just this week been able to shake hands on what we call an Our Game Health, which is going to be a nationwide um, sports and medicine service, basically. So anyone in the country will be able to plug in and access our network of connections to be able to then go and see elite level providers at discounted rates, also using our insurance or our membership money to pay for it. So you no longer have to um, you know, sit and wait for months for an NHS appointment, which let's face it as well is going to take even longer because of COVID. You know, we've, we've put solutions together, which if I look back on it now, I think, yeah, this, this is, if you mind me saying myself, it's impressive. Um, I wish I had it when I played, but now it is available for players to take advantage of and to be protected and supported as if they were in the, in the professional game. They just have to be prepared to get involved rather than sitting around and waiting for somebody to come and give it to them because um, that just doesn't happen. You must have helped hundreds of players at this point over the years. That's got to be a really satisfying feeling for you. Yeah, without a doubt. So there's some stories which players have shared with me over the time. Those who come back and express their gratitude, I don't ask for it, but they express their gratitude and it impacts you really to think you've made a difference to, you know, to some of these guys, you know, where they've got injured and they can't work and, you know, they've needed to, you know, pay bills or they've needed to help to get back playing or just even get back on their feet again. And it's been able to be able to do that in a way which has been built from scratch. It was an idea and a concept which I've then managed to pull together into reality and then to be able to, to provide that support. I, 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 am, I am proud of it because I also look at it and think there are people or organisations with infrastructure behind them or money behind them who aren't achieving um, what we're doing for some of these players. Um, so I do take a you know, degree of pride from that for sure. On the other side of the coin, do you get frustrated hearing stories of players who end up regretting that they've left themselves at risk? The worst conversation I have continuously is the, Dukes, how are you doing? Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah. I meant to um, sign up for our game, you know, but I kept forgetting. All right, that's cool. Well, let's, let's, let's do it now. Yeah, but the thing is, I'm injured. And I kept that <laughs> so many times. And um, people, it's literally, you know what you need to do. But the choice for so many becomes they'd rather pay for their phone. You know, they'd rather pay for the night out. They'd rather put um, 300 pounds in a pair of shoes or a belt or football boots. And as if everyone else is going to take care of their football needs for them. And when we say here is a system which absolutely you cannot lose by. I can, you know, it's that, that clear. You can't lose because even if you don't get injured, you can just still use the money you've paid to get access to benefits, which will, you know, help your body, help your life. Um, but people sometimes still want to wait until it's too late and then ask for miracles. And, you know, we, we've probably built a rod for our own back by performing quite a few miracles. But um, we're moving to, well, we've had to move to a stage where we've scaled up, you know, to a level where we, we, we just can't do it anymore. You need to join um, and do the right thing. Because once you do the right thing, I can assure you we will do the right thing by you. And our, you know, reviews and people who've worked, used our service, you know, will testify to that as well. We're um, proud of our record of help. And um, we just know we're going to be able to help even more people um, as we keep moving forward. Do you think we as a game look after our non-league players well enough? No. I think there's enough money in the game to be able to cascade down to do a lot. I think it's flagged up, particularly at the moment with COVID, where people may be... League One, League Two are looking at the Premier League and saying, well, you should be able to help us out so we can, um, you know, keep existing. And I do, I do agree. You know, you, you, there's no point having a 20-team Premier League if there's no team below. But the problem we have in football is, or my belief, is people um, are very reactive rather than proactive. 
So in terms of the injury situation, for example, they'll wait until things have gone wrong and then try to, you know, stick a plaster on a gaping hole, um, as opposed to maybe saying, well, let's not put everything into the, you know, the, the budget now, you know, the playing budget. Let's put some into the budget. Let's put some into rehab. Let's put some into a rainy day. Let's put some into, you know, making sure the community scheme, all of those things can be done. But it's, it just seems to be so much, let's put it onto the, the first team. And then as you come down the levels, um, there's less and less given to the, um, you know, non-league teams or the lower league teams, but they have the same needs when things go wrong. You know, if you get injured as a Isthmian player or as a Premier League player, you are going to need the same treatment. You may not need it as quickly because you don't have to be back to play for a high value game, but you still need to, you know, recover and rebuild yourself up. It's going to have the same cost, you know, and you, you, it just, the resource just isn't given. And we've created, a, don't get just saying it as it is, we have created a way that people can plug into and have this met in a sustainable way, and an affordable way. But then the decision still then becomes, you have to then shift some of your ex- existing resource or your mindset away from what you're doing currently to embrace something new. And that at times is, is a challenge. People are set in their ways and say still remain reactive rather than proactive. One of the things that really I, I can never understand where clubs will run, you know, um, GoFundMe pages to, to, to help players after they've, they've been injured. Now, someone somewhere needs to realise you play football, there is going to be an injury at some stage. So if you can have a mechanism in place to to protect against it, you then don't need to be, you know, asking for short notice, you know, help or charity to be able to um, help something, which realistically, you know, is going to happen. You don't know who it's going to happen to, you don't know when it's going to happen to, but to be surprised that someone breaks a leg, tears an ACL, has to stop working, you know, or has to stop playing football, to be surprised that happens in football week after week, month after month, year after year, You've got to be crazy. We'll end it on that very important point. Francis, it's been a great pleasure to catch up again. Thank you so much for joining me. Cheers, Chris. Thanks very much. Uh, Where can we find more about our game? Right. Our website is ourgamefootball.com. We're also on all the social media platforms. So Twitter, we're on at our underscore game. Um, Instagram, we are on at our underscore game underscore football. And Facebook is also Our Game Football. So we're on all the platforms and we're just trying to spread the message. We give advice. You know, we, we do a lot to just give advice and share information. There'll be some mental health support coming along the way, for example. So it's definitely stuff people should, you know, plug into. We're not here for the hard sell. We're here to help and we know it does help. Don't sleep on this. It's really important stuff. If you've enjoyed meeting Francis in this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Humans are non-league as a Sphinx Football production. Thank you for listening.